God bless you. Please be seated. Let me invite your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in, beginning in verse number 9. 1 Peter chapter 2. On August the 3rd, I want us to have a day that will remarkably benefit and bless our area and community, and I hope will ignite a movement that will be definitive for our area. I want us to have on that day an evangelism commitment day. You see the commitments I'm calling you to on August the 3rd. I want us to commit to grow to where we share the gospel daily. I want us to involve ourselves in evangelism training. I need from you, from every one of you, as long as you're breathing, at least one hour a month to do outreach and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and some other commitments. I need you to pray every day for 15 lost people that God would save them or reclaim them and bring them to himself. This is a day, and I think we'll see from 1 Peter why this is so, that could be definitive for our area. This is the crying need of the hour, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And to help demonstrate that, I'm going to ask Dave Tolbert to come and share with you for a few moments about his uh, experience in Baltimore as we did evangelism there during crossover in June. Give a Beach Haven welcome to Dave Tolbert. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I believed for over 40 years that the role of evangelism should be left to the professionals, pastors, preachers, missionaries, evangelists. I just decided back then that I would be a salt and light to the world. I would be a relationship evangelist. It was a cop-out. Recently, I had to ask myself, self, How's that working for you? How many souls have have become saved by your wonderful living example? Zero. Dr. Mills challenged me to understand that soul winning is the responsibility of all Christians. Us common, regular people. Max Lucado in in his book, Outlive Your Life, asks, does Jesus still do it? Does he still use regular people? His answer is yes. Before our trip to Baltimore, we had a couple of classes discussing the need for all Christians to evangelize and on the how to evangelize. I felt totally unprepared. How could we be expected to discuss someone's eternal destiny with only a few lessons and a book on evangelism? It seemed that I was unable to memorize more than two Bible verses at a time I would learn a third verse and forget one of the first two verses. And, and no way was I able to memorize all of the Roman road verses. Uh, I was scared. This was unfair. Uh, in the Army, I was also scared about going to war. But I had three years of training before going to Vietnam. Uh, after three years, I felt prepared uh, for any combat situation. Why did we not have that kind of training before I went to Baltimore? Uh, We we arrived in Baltimore, and from the very beginning, though scared and nervous, I was able to witness. Uh, 
I found that the people in Baltimore were regular people just like me. I was just myself, a different regular person than Mike or Chuck or Daniel or Donnie or Tom. I was just being myself. I had different life experiences, talents, and gifts than the others and was able to connect with some people and the other regular guys use their life experiences, gifts, and talents to connect with their, the people they came in contact with. I realized that I was totally prepared. I realized that I was totally prepared to witness to a lost world. Inst instead of the three years that I, I thought I needed, I had training, uh, like I had training for the Vietnam War. I had over 40 years, 40 years of sermons, Sunday school lessons, Bible readings, discipleship uh, classes, and participating in various inner and outer ministries of Beach Haven. I know the Bible. Uh, us, us, us Baptists know the Bible. We, understand, we know it. It is a part of us. I, underst uh, I, can underst I understand it, and I can tell others what it means. By Wednesday, uh, we were there for a whole week, uh, started on Monday and Tuesday. By Wednesday, Dr. Mills realized that visits were not being fruitful in immediate soul winning. So he had all of us prayer walk our assigned areas for Wednesday and Thursday. I thought that was, I mean, I looked up there to soul win. I mean, I, why be doing this? I just didn't seem right. Didn't, but uh, I think Dr. Mills knew what he was doing. Um, we were to uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would prepare people's hearts to hear the gospel. On Friday, he then sent us out two by two. Uh, Daniel and I both agreed that we could not have dreamed of a more productive day of witnessing that Friday. Uh, the Holy Spirit had moved. We had five witness opportunities that only the Holy Spirit could have made happen. And the final event was that we became uh, soul winners and leading Oscar to eternal life with Jesus Christ. Amen. When we finally got to him, he said that he had been waiting 45 minutes for us. <laughs> he said that someone had given him a Bible and he was reading it, but did not understand it. We said that we did, and we told him about the Bible, and he received Christ as his Savior. Oscar's continual prayer, uh, since we've been texting him, is uh, to ask for uh, better friends. Uh, John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I challenge you to be yourself. Be a regular person. How easy is that? Jesus and the Holy Spirit will be responsible and will do all of the work. For me, 40 years of salt and light, zero conversions. One week in Baltimore, Oscar. Thanks. Now imagine we multiply that by 400. Just imagine how different our metro region could be. What a wonderful thing. Thank you, David. I appreciate that so much. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a group of folks that are facing what I believe uh, we will face increasingly over the years. The trajectory of our nation has changed in a decidedly negative direction in many ways. 
I, I'm, I'm not a whiner, I'm not a complainer, I'm also not an alarmist, but there is a significant difference between today and merely 10 years ago in the climate of our nation. In Peter's day, Christians were accused of being atheists, of all things, because they did not believe in the 12 Roman or Greek gods, the major gods of uh, Greek mythology or among the Romans. They were accused of cannibalism because they ate the body and blood of the Lord in the Lord's Supper. And he said, this is my body. Well, they, the, the pagans around them knew better, but they found an opportunity to criticize them. They were uh, accused of being incestuous because they married brothers and sisters in Christ. And then they were accused of being unpatriotic because they would not pinch incense and in a merely perfunctory way uh, throw it into a sacred flame and declare Caesar is Lord. It's something most people did not take seriously, but it was an obligation of many throughout the Roman Empire, and they wouldn't do it no matter how superficial the confession was required to be. In the Great Evangelical Recession, John Dickerson records a number of similar instances, especially in higher education. He covers many other areas, but let me tell you a few things taking place in higher education. In a 2011 edition of the Chronicle of Higher Education, American sociologists said that they were less likely to hire a job candidate who was an evangelical by 40, nearly 40%. 39% said they would overtly discriminate and a half admitted outright prejudice against evangelicals. Martin Gaskell is an esteemed astrologer, I'm told, and he lost a job offer at the University of Kentucky after a board member learned that he potentially was an evangelical. Jewish and Community Research Outfit found uh, among 1,200 professors and their views of religious groups that only 3% of them had negative attitudes towards Jews and were thankful that it's not higher. 22% towards Muslims, but 53% were outright hostile towards evangelicals. California University Policy Handbook defines Christians as oppressors. That's a similar context to what Peter was living in. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, he tells them what to do. And he essentially says what you need more, than now than, more now than ever is honorable conduct. Beginning in verse number 9, it says here in 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who'd not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In our current chaotic climate, what America needs from us more than anything else is excellent, honorable conduct. Well, how am I to do that? Well, there are several things here, and I want to use the acrostic America to communicate this. Letter A, anticipate suffering. Anticipate suffering. Chapter 2, verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Not if 
they speak against you, but when. This is a theme of 1 Peter that covers 17 verses in this short epistle from Peter. Now, Peter's very clear and emphatic throughout the book of 1 Peter that suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ can elicit many blessings. Uh, One, it can elicit God's praise in chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 21, it can make you like Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 16, it will embarrass your critics. Chapter 4, verse 1, you can defeat temptation when you suffer. When you suffer for Christ, it can ignite joy at Christ's return. Chapter 4, verse 14, and then chapter 4, verse 14 again, it can intensify the Spirit's presence in you. Chapter 4, verse 14 again, it can show your approval of God. And then chapter 5, verse 10, it can make you more stable and mature and established. Now I want you to get this, and I want you to get it down good and fast and quick and forever. Whenever you walk with God and the power of the Holy Spirit in honorable conduct, God will shape all of your suffering into an advantage. In the hands of Jesus Christ, everything is an advantage for the child of God and for His kingdom. And the thing to do when you go through suffering and difficulty is not to whine. And the Lord knows America doesn't need another whiner. Amen? What we need more than anything else are people who ask themselves the question, when I go through suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, what is God's goal in this? How is God seeking to gain an advantage in it? In His hands, everything is an advantage. Psalm 76.10, Even the wrath of man shall praise Him, and with the remainder of wrath He will gird Himself. In other words, the wrath and the anger of the hostile world is as pliable in the hands of God as garments and clothing. And so we don't need whiners and complainers. What we need are people who understand that acceptance is not the normal experience for the child of God who follows the Lord. That's not the normal experience. Suffering is, and if you'll anticipate it, you'll be better prepared to deal with it. That'd be a great gift to the nation. But there's a second thing. And that is master submission. Now look what Peter said in verse 13. He said, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to governors. Ladies and gentlemen, he said this during a time when Nero was on the throne. Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned and then blamed the Christians. Nero, who would cover Christians in tar and set them aflame because they needed light posts in the city of Rome. This Nero, he said, wherever there's an ordinance or a law that does not violate the law of God, obey it. Now, you're not obligated to obey laws that uh, violate the law of God. Oh, no, not at all. But when it comes to those laws that are consistent and do not violate the law of God, we are obligated to obey them. Now, he extends this to a number of verses. In fact, there are 20 verses in this short epistle that urge submission to authority. That's to the laws, that's at work, that's in the home, and that's to elders. Now, when we submit, here's a great gift we give to the nation. When we submit appropriately to God-given authority, we are showing the rest of the world what they need to do with Jesus Christ. What a marvelous gift when we submit to those. And frankly, ladies and gentlemen, America needs that gift. They need a model of submission. So anticipate suffering. Master submission, but then emphasize the future. Chapter 2, verse 12. It says here, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. Dr. Patterson translates this in the day of inspection. God is coming to expect the work and the attitudes, the feelings, and the disposition of every man and every woman. There is a judgment day coming for all the earth. Everyone will end up in the court of God. We have a court date with Almighty God. And God will not need a crime investigation unit. He is the crime investigation unit. He knows everything and He was present for every work. Now that terrifies some, that gladdens others. Most, it's a mixture. But God is there. He doesn't need a jury. He doesn't need a detective. He doesn't need an investigation. Being omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows all things. And He has all power. God has a court date with every one of us. And He has called us to Himself. Or will call one day for us to be summoned before His court. Those that are in Jesus Christ will be rewarded. Those that are not have a terrible expectation of meeting a God who is a consuming fire. But that is what the scripture teaches. There is a day of visitation that is coming. And we have got to be the people who emphasize the future. And Peter does that. He emphasizes future reward in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He emphasizes future grace and additional gifts God will give in chapter 1, verse 13. He emphasizes Christ's future return in chapter 2, verse 12. And he emphasizes the world's future judgment in chapter 4 in many verses that are there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, because we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive, you've got to understand, most of life happens on the other side of the grave. Compared to eternity, the 70, 80 years that we have on this earth are really about 15 minutes. If that long when compared to eternity. And so, without an eternal or future focus, you have a human being that is completely detached from reality. Because reality is primarily the other side. We have got to help our culture and our people make decisions about Christ and the way they walk and the way they live with a clear view to the day when God inspects the the works of every man and every woman. We've got to emphasize the future. That reminds me of uh, a man by the name of Doug Odoliki. He's from Ohio. And he came upon a drunk driver checkpoint on a highway there. And he found a sign. He picked up a piece of card, uh, excuse me, a cardboard, a poster board sign, and wrote on it, beware, checkpoint ahead, turn around. He got arrested because he included in his poster board, turn around. Now, I'm not against checkpoints. In fact, I'm very much for them. I've never had reason to fear any of them. But the truth is, is that he sets a marvelous model. There is a checkpoint in everyone's future, and someone needs to tell the world, turn around. And when we do that, we introduce people to the rude reality of the justice of God. Emphasize the future. But then, letter R stands for rejoice in salvation. In a former pastorate on Sunday nights, about once a quarter, we would have Sunday evening services where we would invite members to testify and tell us of the blessings that the Lord gave them. We started out monthly, but it got rather predictable what people would say, and so we turned it into something that was quarterly. But just about during every meeting, you could count on this person saying, I thank God for my family, which is wonderful. And then you could find someone here say, thank God I've got a job. Thank God for health. And it was rather routine, and it got rather predictable. We had one dear lady, Artie Dudley, who got saved as an adult woman. 
And she would get frustrated with these testimonies because she would want someone to say, thank God for Jesus that he saved my wicked soul. Thank God that in loving kindness, Jesus came my soul in mercy to reclaim. And so after a few of these testimonies, she would raise her hand rather annoyed and say, I thank God that he saved me is what she would do. Now, I don't want to dismiss the blessings that I just mentioned. Thank God for family. Thank God for labor and work. Thank God for help. Oh, indeed. But ladies and gentlemen, all of these things are temporal. Salvation is eternal. And that costs the greatest thing of God. Hey, to create the world, Dr. Scarborough said, God just had to speak it into existence. But to save sinners, he had to crucify his only begotten son of God. Somebody needs to be happy that Jesus died and lived again. And, And so Peter says, rejoice in your salvation. Now he alludes to that in verse number 10 of chapter 2. He said, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We've become the people of the king. We've become members of his kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And back in chapter 1, he urges us to rejoice in our salvation. And so, ladies and gentlemen, let me say to you, come November, after election day, your interests may not be represented there. They may not. Come the day after election day. But if you know Jesus Christ, you have the multiplied graces of Calvary. You have the hope of an empty tomb and the promises of a soon and coming king. Therefore, we have a greater victory than political victory. We've got a greater power than media power. And we've got a greater hope than the humanistic, utopian hope because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness and it stands forever. He's coming. He's returning. Whether Washington, Atlanta, or anyone else wants Him to come. And He will establish His kingdom and make it permanent. That which, is, that, that, that which gives Him peace, that which satisfies Him will never, ever go away. Ladies and gentlemen, come November, you may not have Washington, but you don't need it. You've got Jesus. Rejoice in that. The letter I stands for intensify good works. Intensify good works. Verse number 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In this short epistle, 25 verses are given to that. It reminds me of Plato who was told by someone that someone was speaking evil of him. And he replied, well, then I will live in such a way that no one will believe him. No one will believe him. Whenever you behave as Jesus Christ would behave with good works, you reenact the life of Jesus Christ. And has there ever been a more beautiful life than the life of Christ? Has anyone come anywhere near him? The one who touched lepers first and then healed them. No one's ever had that much mercy and compassion. If it were me, I'd heal him first and then touch him. But Jesus touched first and then he healed. The one who had grace flowing from his lips, whose words are quoted today more than anyone else's. The one who disrupted every funeral that he attended. That one. That kind of life is the life that you reenact whenever you follow him and reenact his life in this life. And then whenever you perform these good works, dear friend, what you do is that you end up showing and previewing the kingdom of God to come when Jesus Christ returns. So intensify 
good works. Both will draw the world to him and his great power. Then letter C, I want to take off on what Dave Tolbert said. He was entirely correct in everything he said. And that is communicate Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of, his, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Several questions about this. What does this mean? The word proclaim is the word from which we get our word evangelism. Declare. Some translate it advertise. It reminds me of the uh, child who was going to be baptized and grandmother asked her one day, what's going to happen to you Sunday? And she said, I'm going to be advertised on Sunday. She got the word confused, but she made it real good. She was advertising the death and resurrection of Christ in her baptism. Well, that's what it means to do. There are 14 verses in this short epistle emphasizing proclamation, verbal declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, why are we to do this? Because he is excellent. We're to proclaim the excellencies or the virtues or the praises, some translations read, of him who called us. May I say to you, when you come to the subject of Jesus Christ, you cannot exhaust him. The Apostle Paul said indeed that uh, Christ's riches are unsearchable. There is not a human language capable of describing everything that Jesus is. And even in those areas where we can't approximate who he is, it's frustrating to talk about Jesus in human languages because even when we get close to describing who he is, you and I know he's so much more than what human tongue can tell and what it can declare. We could, ever, we could take every corn stalk in the nation and turn it into a pen. And we could take every ocean in the world and turn it into ink. And the whole sky could become a scroll. And we would wear down the nub of every pen. And we would exhaust the ocean dry. And we would fill up the skies before we could ever exhaust the riches and the glories and the majesties of Jesus Christ. There would simply be no way to do so. Here in this uh, letter, Peter refers to Jesus 17 times. He refers to Jesus 10 times and him referring to Jesus Christ seven times. Beloved, he just can't get over Jesus because of who Jesus is. His excellencies are far beyond anyone that we have ever known. In fact, if you have just one touch of his grace, you're going to find it difficult not to speak about him. I want to tell you, it is hard to mess this thing up. It is really difficult. It is more difficult not to talk about Christ than it is to lift up his name. You actually have to suppress the life of Christ within you to be silent. But whenever you share the good news of Jesus Christ, it is the natural and normal thing to do. Well, uh, what? We're to proclaim. Why? Because of his virtues. Who? Jesus Christ. And where? Well, he's called us out of darkness. If you don't know Christ today, the Lord says you're in darkness But there's hope. He is the God now through the preached word who's calling you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Light stands for truth and for purity. There is truth in Jesus Christ. You can have a firm place to stand in him. And then there is purity in Jesus Christ and there is power for living. That's what it means to come into his light. And that's what our desperate world needs more than anything else. We need to give America August 3rd our evangelism commitment day. I like what Dr. Criswell said. Listen carefully. This is a lengthy paragraph. But he said this about the apostle in Rome. He said, Rome was a city of slavery, but the apostle did not center his preaching on slavery. Rome was a city of lust, but he did not center his preaching on moral reform. Rome was a city of economic injustice, 
But he did not center his preaching on the equal distribution of wealth. Rome was a city of violence, of bloody gladiatorial combat, but he did not center his preaching on inhumanity of man to man. Rome is a city built upon the spoils of war, but he did not center his preaching on pacifism. The apostle preached the power of the cross to save. And these cruel enemies of God and man fell. The power of the gospel itself provoked social action. That is the power of the gospel. When we tell our nation to do right, when it's outside of Jesus Christ, you might as well go to the local cemetery and tell it to straighten up its behavior. You're speaking to a world full of corpses, and corpses don't do anything but stink. And that's what we have in our nation today. Without the enlightening presence and gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for humanity. But with Jesus Christ, there's nothing but endless hope with him. His life and his breath comes into the body and soul and he transforms and everyone that meets Christ becomes a new creation in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you uh, plant and uh, distribute abundantly and lavishly the saving gospel of Christ, it will detonate at some point and vanquish and eliminate evil and bring people to Jesus Christ. And thus is the history of the Christian church and the movement of the gospel of Christ. What the world needs is more of Jesus. What the world needs is more of Jesus. What the world needs is more of Jesus in its life every day and in every way. Communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. And then the final A in America stands for abstain from sin. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which wage war, which go to war against the soul. Someone who's traveling from one place to another and stays in a hotel doesn't really involve himself in the life of that city where the hotel's located. Well, that's what we are. This place is a hotel for our existence. We do not attach ourselves then to its lusts and its values. If we do, they will wage war against the interests of our soul is precisely what they will do. Now, the good news is that when Peter says abstain from fleshly lusts, do you know why he's saying that? He's saying that because with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. You don't have to work up victory. Instead, you're working from victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already defeated these things, and a walk with him by faith yields the power of the Holy Spirit in adequate measures to give you victory over sin. You do not have to be an accident looking for some place to happen. You do not have to fail. You can walk with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are 24 verses addressed to that in the short epistle of 1 Peter. Reminds me of my, uh, one of my first church secretaries when I pastored in South Carolina. Brenda went through a very difficult time in her marriage and her husband left. He was angry, he hated her Christian faith, and he disrespected it terribly. He would make fun of her and was uh, profoundly ugly, rude, hateful, bombastic, provocative, always. Anytime he spoke to her uh, about the faith and about other matters, and finally he left, and he did not feel like she was worthy of custody of their three boys. Oh, she was. Don't misunderstand me. 
In fact, every morning, Brenda would arrive to the office 30 minutes early and open her Bible and plead with God for the power of the Spirit for that day. She would immerse herself in the Word of God in prayer every day. She, all through our community and in her home church, had an outstanding reputation. She came into the office one day rejoicing. And we prayed with her through the court cases and the custody hearings and these things. And she came in one day saying, last night my ex-husband called me and gave me some news that he had hired a private investigator to follow me to gather information to present to court about how unworthy a mother I was. And she was happy. And I said, well, why are you happy? She said, well, the private investigator came back after a week and quit. <laughs> My ex-husband was telling me this last night on the phone. He said, the worst thing, the private investigator speaking, the worst thing that she does is that she drinks too much coffee and goes to Walmart too often with her parents. I want a church, a colony of the kingdom of God, where the worst thing they can say about us is that we drink too much coffee and may go to a department store too often. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you can have that kind of life. It starts with yielding yourself to Christ. And I want to say to you, outside of Jesus Christ, we're harming our nation. We're going about life exemplifying for children that we can get along without Jesus Christ. We can't. We're actually misleading them. And what God is calling us to do today is to divorce that kind of life and to let it go, to repudiate it, to rebuke it. The Bible calls it repentance. And unless we repent, we shall likewise perish, Scripture says. But to divorce a life that is not fully trusting of Christ and His cross and His ways. Turn from that and come to Jesus for cleansing. The Bible promises whoever does that by faith will be saved. And God's calling you now to turn to Him and say yes to Him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how we bless You and how we thank You for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that in Jesus there is hope for our nation and the world. And we pray, God, that we would contribute to that, that we would move the nation forward to look more and more like Jesus by repenting and placing faith in Him. Some of us need to renew our walk with Him. Some need to become part of this church, follow Christ in baptism, or surrender to missionary service or to ministry. We pray that you would move on hearts and souls today and give whatever is necessary to please the Lord in all respects now in this most important time. Now we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And our staff is going to be standing here at the front. If you're ready to give your life to Christ today, abandon all and say yes to Him. Come meet one of these staff members here. Step out of the pew where you are. Folks will move aside for you. They're accustomed to doing that. And meet one of our staff members. Share your spiritual need. And we'll help you move forward. There's nothing magic about walking down these aisles. We just want to give you the help that you now need to follow Jesus with everything you've got. 
Would you quickly stand with me real quietly, please? I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, in our song, in our confession, in our prayer, in our decisions, in our heart, may these things be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. Gather all the glory for your son's name that he deserves now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come.